Hey, this is the Hard Truth, Tony Schaefer, powered by Six Hour Never Settle. Uh, I had a choice what I carried in combat. I always carried the best. Uh, I personally like the P320. I have a number myself. So Six Hour is always out there with the best technology and best options you have for personal protection. Never settle. And also, uh, we are on the America Out Loud talk radio network, also available on the America Out Loud podcast network as well. Check us out. Uh, ProjectSentinel.net, LondonCenter.org. We're on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Rumble. We're joined today by John Christmas, who's a former banker whose banking career ended when his whistleblowing against his employer was covered up by the European Bank of Reconstruction and Development. He earned a BA at Dartmouth College uh, and a BA at Cornell University, and he wrote a book called KGB Banker. John, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tony. Thank you for inviting me. I, I'm confident I have something interesting for your audience today. I'm sure you do. So, uh, and the, the bank, the book is available. The book, the bank, the bank, the book. The book is available at kgbbanker.com. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. The publisher is Sunbury Press of Pennsylvania. It's on Amazon, or you can go to our own website, kgbbanker.com. Great. So I look forward to having people go check it out. So here we go. So, John, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, clearly, you know, I'm a whistleblower, as you know. We've, uh, I think, shared that experience. People don't understand. You don't normally seek to be a whistleblower. It's more about events that you witness that uh, help shape your decisions. So tell us about uh, kind of how you became a banker and, and how you then, then chose to become a whistleblower. Well, this this whole experience has been eye-opening because a lot of things happened that were far different from what I would have anticipated. I was just a normal banker in the United States, and I worked for a bank in Chicago for a while, and I worked for a bank in Buffalo for a while. And uh, I'm partly of Latvian heritage, so I have some contacts in Latvia, including through the American Chamber of Commerce in Latvia. And through them, I got recruited to... Uh, be front man, you could say, for this bank, which mm -hmm. uh, was the largest in the country at that time. And uh, there was some kind of prestige with being their uh, Western face or their Western representative going to conferences and meeting people to represent the bank. Um, there were rumors swirling around about it, but uh, otherwise things I mean, bad rumors that they were the mafia, but uh, yeah. some yeah. things they had uh, the major Western ratings agencies rating them. They had a big four auditor signing off on their accounts. Uh, they said that since Latvia is joining the European Union, that we have regulation that is uh, compliant with European Union uh, rules. But it has turned into a big mess, control, uh, really connecting straight up to the Kremlin and with all sorts of organizations fighting to cover up what I did including that main one you mentioned, the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. But right. uh, it, it makes a dynamite thriller. I mean, in real life, it was a disappointment that a lot of money got stolen, that could have uh, a lot of crime could have been prevented if people acted differently. But at least the uh, good ending of it is I met William Burton McCormick, my co-author, who's a right. professional author. He's great with suspense, character development. I mean, he put together a dynamite book together with me. I mean, we had a great working relationship and uh, hammered out something that he's very proud of and I'm very proud of as well. Uh, we won two awards with it. Um, it anyway has a dual purpose because I, I would like to... Uh, add something to the discussion about, you know, what 
what our attitudes today about whistleblowing and how things can go wrong, uh, how things could be better in the future. But we also just have a fun thriller for people who are into James Bond or Tom Clancy or something. We've put together something nice. Well, that's good. So, yeah. And to that note, you you did win the two awards uh, named Best Conspiracy Thriller of 2022. That's good. Uh, for those who like conspiracies, uh, as if they don't exist, of course they do. <laughs> and then uh, also the Royal Dragonfly Award for Best Fiction Novel of any type in 2022 as well. So those are good good awards. And it says here, um, John, you guys incorporate uh, all sorts of large-scale large scale international narcotics, like sla- sex slaves, sex slaves. Boy, my tongue is, is not working today. Uh, weapons trafficking. And of course, uh, the KGB. Who who doesn't love the KGB? By the way, I mean they're they're like a, a you know kind of the ultimate bad guy, the ultimate Bond villain. So, tell us about the basic framework for the book. And I know as a whistleblower, you don't want to name names necessarily. To get, you know to, to, that that should not be put into a book. But clearly, you guys had a purpose of 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 like you talked about you want to get information out about what it's like to be a whistleblower or some of those things what was the basic premise of the book what what made you motivated to, to do the book is there something within your knowledge of the kgb the banking issues that you saw what is it that really drove you to do the book well there was a particular friend um who also is latvian american and he knew this author who had just published a historical fiction novel about latvia and russia yeah and he was pushing us all the time saying listen you guys got to do a book together because it's going to be dynamite it's going to be really exciting and interesting and uh, you should do it and then the way i planned it out with bill my co-author was to make it as a standard thriller. I mean, it could become a movie, for example. It, it, it has the uh, the classic three-act structure to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then what we decided is we've got to fictionalize the characters because we don't want people coming after us for this. I mean, actually, right. the villains right. themselves can read the book how it is, and they'll probably enjoy it. So uh, the only character who's not completely fictionalized would be uh, the protagonist who's based upon myself, and that's pretty obvious because they say it's a... Uh, Chicago, uh, a Chicagoan of Latvian uh, heritage who gets recruited to work for this bank in Latvia, which is pretty much me. Mm-hmm. Um, then, then some particulars about me are changed around to fictionalize me, but but in general, that's me. And then we have uh, a slew of other characters. Uh, the media comes big into play in this. Uh, the failures of the media, we have uh, some good and some bad in our media characters. Um, the uh, government people, the development bank people, we we have all these characters. And from my experience, actually living through this and living in Latvia several years and getting to know these people uh, really added to it. Uh, also, Bill lived for several years in Ukraine and has a, uh, you know, a passionate interest in the area. He's not of Ukrainian heritage. I mean, he's just an American guy. But anyway, uh, he's always been fascinated by Russia, Ukraine, Latvia, by this whole region. Uh, we've put together uh, an oligarch character, the protagonist, the journalist characters, the politicians. I think we've put together a, a dynamite cast, and it really gets into uh, what can go wrong with uh, financial regulation, what can go wrong with whistleblowing, what can go wrong in the media. Um, we put a resolution into it. It's actually based on a real cover-up, and it the real cover-up is still going on, so right. uh, everything has really changed there. And it does actually connect to 
Uh, I mean, the name of the bank that I did work for was called Barex Bank of Latvia, and it was connected by the Spanish court in the Tombovskaya Mafia case, which was uh, a mafia from St. Petersburg closely connected with Putin's rise to power. Mm-hmm. Uh, that Parex was named by the Spanish court as the uh, money laundering service provider to that mafia. And that mafia was doing the narcotics trafficking, the sex slave trafficking, the arms dealing to rogue warlords, uh, the sort of activity that the Russian government got involved with, not directly, but rather through organized crime groups in order to give themselves deniability. So let's break that down a little bit, because I think it's very interesting for the audience to understand. Uh, Putin was very much a strong man uh, who came out of the KGB. And to your point, John, he actually was engaged in not only being that guy you go to behind the scenes, the KGB after the Cold War ended became essentially uh, an extension of um, of the oligarchs as well as dealing on black market things. I, I don't think a lot of people understand that when uh, they talk about blood diamonds, the KGB was heavily involved in Africa in buying and selling the blood diamonds, which are now technically illegal. And within that perspective, uh, the current events being driven by Putin, I think, reflect well or reflect directly on his being essentially a, a, a street thug who essentially was a black market guy who actually got away with a lot of stuff. He started this at, at, in St. Petersburg. He's, he's just doing it at a, at a bigger level at a, with a larger audience now. Is, would that be an accurate representation of Putin and who he is and where he came from? Well, yeah, a strange thing has gone on in Russia, which nobody understood very well in the beginning, was this complete merger between uh, Russian intelligence, the KGB and the other organs of Russian intelligence, and organized crime. And their strategy in Russia, in Latvia, in Ukraine, and other countries as well, uh, was to make agreements between the government and between the organized crime groups where you would be like a sanctioned heroin trafficker, for right. example, that your heroin trucks coming from Afghanistan through Russia and to Europe would be under government protection. I mean, on one level, you're uh, with an organized crime group, but on another level, you pay part of the money up to Putin and then you're protected. So th- this is part of what has gone on. I mean, obviously, the results right now are tragic in the in the world. But uh, there are for sure lessons to be learned here. I mean, one thing was lax financial regulation or that people kind of laughed off the oligarchs for years. Um, there were many opportunities when the United States and Europe and the UK could have cracked down on certain people or could have cracked down on certain things, and they didn't do it. And right. Right. Uh, this this overall mafia, which is the government of Russia now, I just became more and more and more powerful. I mean, the the amounts of money flowing through this uh, system in the Baltic states got up to over uh, really hundreds of billions of dollars. I mean, not hundreds of millions, but hundreds of billions of dollars going through shell company accounts. But this is something where I would think that if in the 1990s uh, there had been a crackdown, maybe things wouldn't be how they are now. Um, Anyway, yeah, obviously with the book, since it's a thriller, we tried to have fun with it and make it into yeah. an adventure. But of course, it's serious stuff now with a real war going. Well, so that's the next thing I want to do. So you, you mentioned that your own whistleblowing experience is really not done yet. Do you want to tell us a little bit about, uh, again, why you became a whistleblower? Uh, kind of just the like what what drove you to do it? And, and 
and what's not resolved regarding where, where you guys are at in the movie right now. Okay, so um, when I got hired by this bank, I was not told that uh, that they're completely fraudulent and laundering money and that my job is to trick everybody. I mean, <laughs> how they hired me is they said that we're above board, we're doing things legally, we have all the proper AML and compliance and corporate governance uh, things in place to match the quality of any Western bank. So uh, that's what I was told. And then as I was there, I figured out that this is not true that uh, actually there are, <laughs> most of the accounts there are shell company accounts denominated in dollars originated from Moscow. Hmm. And that these are normal, not normal uh, uh, depositors. I mean, they're all designed to hide the uh, beneficiaries of the money. Uh, large amounts of money are flowing around uh, connected with certain oligarchs whose name came up in meetings. So I was having some meetings internally in the bank where they were a uh, couple of times mentioned really bad people who are customers, uh, like top oligarchs. I mean, known for uh, not only stealing a lot of money, but killing people as well. Right. And uh, the, the fact that this was able to go on for so long. But anyway, I had been going out there and telling Western banks that they could trust my bank. And I felt really upset that I had basically deceived a lot of people. I mean, I didn't realize what was going on at the beginning, but I thought that uh, well, maybe I can put a stop to it now, or I could uh, write what I had uh, participated in earlier by telling everybody what's going on. But then this cover-up thing uh, hit me by surprise, which was this taxpayer-funded development bank. And the United States uh, contributes some of the money to this development bank, the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. Mm -hmm. They announced uh, after my whistleblowing that they did a due diligence on my bank and found out that everything was correct there, that the assets were not stolen, for example. And they announced that they purchased a stake in the bank uh, from the government. So it was owned by oligarchs. The government nationalized it and put government money into it. And then the government resold part of it to this development bank. And this was supposed to prove that the bank was totally OK and that it had not been looted, even though it had been looted. And uh, later, after this uh, privatization, which essentially made me look like a fraud because it made me look like I was lying that the assets were bad since mm -hmm. this development bank bought a stake, it turned out to have been a fake privatization that got reversed five years later, where uh, it turned out that the government had actually paid the development bank secretly to make the investment. So the development bank did not buy a stake because the stake was actually worth something, but rather they bought it because they got secretly paid to buy it. Wow. I mean, a lot of these scams go on these days, like in the crypto world, where you want to make your cryptocurrency look like it's worth more than it really is. You could uh, secretly pay somebody else to pretend to buy some of it to make the price look higher. So it's this sort of a deal. But this was done by a, uh, a development bank funded by European, British and American taxpayers. And wow. this is not right. But uh, it's still basically going on. I mean, all those, there's a successor to my old bank now, which is still partly owned by this development bank, where uh, and a report that is not available in Latvia, but is available from a statistical office in Europe says that that one is similar to the previous one, where it's also due to be secretly reversed. Uh, that's something I've been trying to get into the media because it's quite a serious thing. 
if anyone would wake up in the European Union or the UK or the US and uh, approach this development bank and say, hey, listen, uh, this is not correct that you say that you bought a stake in something because it was valuable and it's actually not valuable and you got secretly paid to do it. Uh, so why don't you come clean with the whole thing? And furthermore, since these banks are linked to the Putin regime, uh, there should be even, it's not just technical fraud, it's even worse than that. It's it's uh, really, uh, you know, in danger of causing a massive war in the world right now, and uh, something should be done about this. But uh, anyway, that that's still going on, and actually the war hasn't even changed anything, because uh, that uh, that development bank still is saying that they own that bank in Latvia. There's a couple other ones as well uh, <laughs> in other countries that appear to also have similar deals going on with the same development bank, the ABRD. And uh, some of it is, um, it seems, well, there are certain oligarchs who own banks together with the EBRD. There's also certain looting that has gone on through banks that were being supported in various ways by the EBRD. In fact, looting Ukraine, because uh, right. the old government of Ukraine, uh, Mr. Yanukovych and his top money launderer, uh, Kurchenko was the name of that oligarch, ran their money through a bank in Latvia, which was related to my bank, and uh, stole billions of dollars from the Ukrainian treasury, which was the original cost, uh, the original reason why violence broke out in Ukraine back uh, nine years ago. And uh, these kinds of problems are still continuing. I mean, as people pump money into Ukraine right now, I hope it's going to the right purposes, but uh, you never know. And since certain cover-ups are still continuing and people won't uh, talk about what the evidence shows, uh, who knows what could be going on now. But yeah, I would love to have a breakthrough with that. And in the meantime, you know, with the thriller, I'm just hoping to uh, have a fun way in which to raise awareness. Right. We'll talk about that more in a second. I do want, I'd like to break down a little bit more about the Ukraine issue of corruption, because I've argued in the media, John, that the, the Russians and the Ukrainians are are uh, basically two sides of the same coin. They're both uh, countries which are uh, corrupt. They're run by oligarchs. Uh, their community of governance, while they say it's it's a diplomatic, it's it's based on democracy, it's really not. I think it's more about the group of, of um, individuals who are billionaires who have plundered the respective treasuries uh, of their countries or have control of the industry, which are the ones that really benefit. And at this point, uh, any money that we do send to Ukraine, I, d I don't believe, I, d I have no confidence it's going to go to where it needs to be, especially regarding military hardware. I've talked to folks who say, yeah, when you send something there, you can it, it probably count on about one quarter. Whatever you send in, about one quarter is going to end up where it's supposed to be. Otherwise, it goes to corruption. Is that is that a accurate representation of kind of the region, John, from your perspective? Well, the way I hope the Western countries are doing it right now is to carefully monitor everything they give to Ukraine to make sure it goes to its uh, proper purposes and yeah. things aren't getting embezzled. Um, for sure, in the past, it was not done this way. It was shameful for uh, for the entire 30 years uh, prior to now that uh, that money would be given by Western donors to the or Western lenders to the Ukrainian government and this money would disappear and it would go into the pockets of oligarchs. And sure, this destabilized the entire country. It built up a lot of uh, anger between different groups of people. 
this this oligarchy that's in Ukraine is is related and linked to the oligarchy that is in Russia as well right. and in Latvia. And uh, there were a lot of uh, opportunities that uh, the United States and other countries had to crack down on this earlier to arrest certain people. The the biggest oligarch in Ukraine, uh, Kolomoisky, who made fake loans to himself from Privat Bank and and caused the largest lender in in Ukraine to need a huge government bailout. Uh, he is being pursued a bit, at least by American authorities. I mean they. Uh, sees some properties and companies that he bought in the United States through fronts uh, using stolen money. Uh, he still is not in jail, though, and there must be still money that's hidden. And uh, why this process is taking so long to put him uh, behind bars is just mind-boggling that there's even a war now and this guy is still uh, free and rich. And um, maybe he'll lose some office buildings in Ohio that he bought, but uh, he's he's still out there. In fact, from all the top oligarchs from uh, Russia and from Ukraine, there's not one of them in jail. Uh, they're all free, and some of them are sanctioned, but the ones who are sanctioned still appear to be living large, or you know, they ask their buddy to lend them $100 million or something so that they can get survive until the sanctions end, something like this. Uh, but for sure, there were many lost opportunities to crack down on the money laundering, crack down on the corruption, tell a country like Ukraine, listen, we're not going to give you the next uh, development loan until this list of 10 people are in jail and the stolen government property is taken back by the government. Th this kind of thing could have worked better. I mean, even for Russia itself, I, Russia itself right. has uh, got cleaned out the same way. So to that point, I think uh, it's very clear that the oligarchs bought politicians. They invested in politicians. And I would argue that Joe Biden uh, was one of those through, through Hunter Biden, that, that basically through gas, through the whole relationship that they did through the gas and oil development in Ukraine, there was a great deal of corruption there. And obviously, um, to me, John, anytime you're, you can buy politicians, it's a good investment because it keeps you out of, out of trouble. And so to that point, when you did, you did your book, you, you said you did this book to be to raise awareness, which is great. Is all of this corruption woven in to the story and, and, and what's your basic uh, kind of uh, 30 second overview of, of uh, what's going on in the book that uh, people will learn a great deal about regarding your experience and why it's important for them to want to read the book? Well, I'll say that we did not feature corrupt Americans in the book. There there are some corrupt Americans who are featured in the true story, mm -hmm. but we did not put that into the book. Gotcha. I mean, the corrupt people are in Eastern Europe in our book. Uh, there is, uh, to the real cover-up and fraud story, there are uh, connections to the Democrats. There's a strong connection to Hunter Biden, um, this yeah. lady yeah. in Washington who was the lobbyist who hooked him up with Burisma, also was the lobbyist for my old bank and even for the whole Latvian government to try to stop the banks from uh, in Latvia from getting sanctioned, even though they should have been sanctioned much earlier. Um, that's one connection. Another connection is this use of front owners. So uh, it's a big thing for the mafia. They need to have these United States dollar correspondent accounts to uh, run the hundreds of billions of dollars they're stealing through those accounts. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, if a bank is overtly owned by an oligarch, uh, these days it can't get a United States dollar correspondent account because all the American clearing banks in New York, they wouldn't take on the risk of doing that. However, if a bank says that it's owned by the EBRD, 
then, uh, you know, since the EBRD is supposed to be a development bank uh, supporting democracy, then uh, the the correspondent account providers look at it differently. Another thing is, uh, to be fair, I'll mention one Democrat and one Republican also. Um, the bank that uh, I used to work for, it's now kind of reborn with a different name. Uh, besides the EBRD, it has uh, another person named Tim Collins, who's, an, uh, who's a Democrat, and he's a billionaire from the United States. And Tim Collins, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he got secretly paid as well to buy his share, like maybe his deal was the same as the deal that the EBRD got. And he has John Kerry flying three times to <laughs> visit the prime minister of Latvia to discuss it. Uh, the other one, which could be similar, is uh, Bank of Cyprus, which is partly owned by Russian oligarchs. It's partly owned by the EBRD, and it's partly owned by a Republican billionaire who is Wilbur, Wilbur Ross. But between those two banks, Bank of Cyprus with Wilbur Ross and uh, Citadel Bank, it's now called in Latvia with Tim Collins, it makes you wonder when uh, when a famous billionaire from the United States says that he's owner of a company together with some Russian oligarchs, uh, whether he really paid for that or whether he's being used by his for his name to help them to run dollars through the accounts without uh, scrutiny. So this sounds like a, a real whodunit, but with kind of a more... A complex cast of characters dealing with some of the real situations people are facing today. Would that be an accurate representation of the book and what what people what you what you see in it? And we have to be quick. So we're getting, we're getting <laughs> There's been so much corruption. Well, we have a lot of corrupt people in the book. A lot of yeah. people aren't who they seem to be in the beginning. And in the real story, for sure. I mean, it's been. Uh, I'm still waiting for who's gonna. Uh, do something and finally end this. Uh, for example, in the United Kingdom, uh, there are angles that connect it with the conservatives and there are angles also which connect it with labor. Yeah. And uh, whether I support the conservatives or labor is going to depend on who's going to do something about this first. Uh, what I am quite sure about in the United States is they try to bribe everybody. I mean, how much success they have with one party versus the other party, I don't know. But um, I'm sure they're at least trying to bribe everybody. And uh, yeah, and I don't know about Joe Biden himself, but for sure his son. I mean, it it's a common thing to go after the son of somebody to oh, yeah. give money or the wife of somebody and give them money. So, oh, yeah, uh, yeah the, these are all tricks they'll play. But the Russians, they're really aggressive about the bribery, and they'll try every kind of trick that they can think of, setting up think tanks in Washington, for example, or doing payments through uh, controlled development banks like this EBRD. Yep apparently pays donations and consulted consulting fees to very large numbers of people. Oh no, I've seen it. And it, it's supposed to be because uh, this is their mission to support democracy, but this is not really true. It's uh, hush money for people to spread false pet propaganda about how wonderful this development bank is, which is not really true. Right. So John, thanks for being here today and helping educate us on this whole corrupt banking system. Uh, I think people could learn a lot by reading your book. Again, the book is KGB Banker. Uh, John's not KGB, right? Right, John, you're not KGB, are you? No, tell us you're not. No, for I'm, sure not. No, I'm, for, I'm for sure. Born in the United States. That's right. I, See, I there he's, he's, not, he's, just, he's talking the about the KGB. He's not KGB, and it's uh, available on uh, KGBBanker.com. Uh, John, uh, thanks for uh, hanging out and telling us about this, and uh, we hope to have you back at some point when you get more resolution or more progress on the overall whistleblower issue. Thank you, Tony. A pleasure to be here. Great. Thank you. And we're taking a break now. We'll be back on the other end with more of the hard truth. Tony Shea.
The Wellness Company shares your values and fights for medical freedom. They put patients before profits and follow medical science, not political science like doctors on the left. Their chief medical board, which includes Dr. Peter McCullough, are the makers of the incredible American-made high-quality spike formula. If you worry about spike proteins, go to TWC.health and use promo code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount. Once again, that's TWC.health, promo code OUTLOUD. We know you love the versatility and portability of the Genesis Fogger, but sometimes you just want to set it and forget it. Well, we heard you. Introducing the UX4 HOCL Atomizer. This stationary unit quietly protects you and is perfect for smaller spaces. With over a quarter million units sold in Japan, it's now available in the United States. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to see the UX4 in action and receive a 15% discount on either Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. Trouble concentrating or recalling information is frustrating, embarrassing, and kills productivity. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created Focus and Recall to boost your brain power. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Focus and Recall is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients to help you immediately sharpen focus, concentrate longer, and strengthen recall. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code out loud. Hello, I'm Ben Marble, MD, and I founded MyFreeDoctor.com as a donation-supported, faith-based nonprofit with a mission to save lives by delivering free doctor visits to patients in all 50 states of America. MyFreeDoctor.com treats a broad range of health concerns like COVID-19, long COVID, sinus infections, urinary tract infections, rashes, medication refills, and more. So please visit MyFreeDoctor.com, where we're healing America one person at a time. AmericaOutloud.com. If you can't find it here, you can't find it anywhere. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought, working hard to earn your trust for seven incredible years and counting. America Out Loud Talk Radio, the liberty and justice for all. This is part two of the hard truth of Tony Schaefer, powered by Six Hour Never Settle. I have a choice, but I carry the combat. I always carry the best, and the best is Six Hour. I'm a big fan of the P320. Have a number. Uh, highly recommended as a personal protection tool. And we are also on the America Out Loud Talk Radio Network, also available on America Out Loud Podcast Network. And join us, Project Sentinel, at projectsentinel.net. And the London Center for Policy Research, uh, the London Center, the LCPR.org. And here we are uh, always on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Rumble. And here we are back again, phase two, part two of our show. Uh, John, Christmas continues, uh, author of KGB Banker. He's not KGB, just saying for the audience, don't be thinking he's KGB. <laughs> and then uh, Chris Cordani, our executive producer. Uh, I, I always here helping keep re- running the rolling the records for us. And then Tanya <laughs> Miller uh, from Hawaii, t- always vivacious uh, with her readers on. Nice readers, by the way. <laughs> and then, uh, and then uh, my friend and colleague, uh, Elizabeth Breckenkamp, uh, also vivacious from uh, in Virginia right now, I believe. So in Virginia, in Virginia. So we're all here together. Uh, we're going to continue our discussion of KGB and issues relating to corruption. Uh, so as the audience probably knows, I do a lot of interviews relating to oversight, 
the need for proper uh, documentation to be reviewed by those with authority to review it. Uh, and obviously, the whistleblowing thing is something that uh, everybody needs to, to support. So let's start with that. Uh, it's very clear to me that there's no good guys in the war with Ukraine and Russia. Uh, and I've said, and I think John backed me up on this, uh, they're all kind of oligarchs with their own agendas. And that agenda is to make money and uh, has nothing to do with democracy. So I think that's one of the things that people tend to forget is that um, we're not actually helping uh, the people of either country by supporting oligarchs. And John, let's start with, with that premise. If you've got people running the banking system who benefit themselves more than anyone else, I don't see any benefit to either the people of Russia or the people of Ukraine. Is, is, uh, how, how do you see that? Well, the, the banking system in both countries was for sure totally corrupt and a lot yeah. of money laundering and fraud going on. The normal way, it's not even an exception, but the normal way commercial banks were run for uh, many years, I suppose still now in Russia and Ukraine and Latvia as well, is that uh, commercial banks' lent, loan portfolio would be embezzled. I mean, they would make fake loans to themselves or <laughs> to as payoffs to somebody. So they would say, oh, we have this asset. This asset is a $50 million loan to ABC company registered on an island somewhere. And uh, it's not a real asset because they, they paid that off to somebody for protection or they embezzled it for themselves so they're uh, their wife and their kids can get some new uh, fancy cars and palaces. And uh, that that's where the, uh, you know, this causes economic hardship as well, where uh, the banks I used to work for in the United States were making real loans to real companies, which actually helped the economy. But if the lending of the banks in, in Ukraine and Russia and uh, sometimes in Latvia uh, is that the money is just all getting diverted into the pockets of corrupt people and they probably don't even spend it there. They probably spend all the money uh, on the French Riviera or something. Then it, it's not really benefiting the economies there. And for sure, this is a problem. I, I will say that uh, I don't consider Russia and Ukraine right now today to be equal risk for the United States. I mean, for sure, since Russia is making threats with nuclear weapons, it's it's on a different level from Ukraine right now. But uh, yeah, but for sure, the economies of both countries were totally corrupt. Right. We could talk about that, but uh, some of the team probably has a question here if they want to I, jump in. I, oh, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, speaking of corruption, this is my one uh, point for you, John, is uh, on that corruption note and the influence, like we're talking about blackmail, laundering, narcotics, sex slave uh, arms uh, moving. Uh, and then it makes me think of a 2019 video in which the uh, president's, the current president's son was confessing to a prostitute from a confessing on video uh, naked to a prostitute that he had an encounter in 2018 in a Vegas hotel where he claimed in the video to the prostitute that the Russian mafia stole his lap, one of his three laptops that are gone, and that that uh, laptop had, just like this encounter with this prostitute, had many other videos of similar activity. And so uh, his concern that he was expressing on this video to this prostitute mentioned his father was running for president and, and, and these activities on there. So I'm just mm -hmm. wondering, with his ties with Burisma, 
this energy company in Ukraine, his cushy deals, his father becomes president, despite this information coming out in advance, a lot of us saw it. And, you know, we're getting exclusives on Daily Mail or what have you. And yet nothing comes of it on the mainstream media. And yet we are contending with our money going over there and, and policies and all of the propaganda to support the war. And yeah, I'm, I'm looking and thinking about corrupt persons that don't really care about the issues that they're propagating to. I don't actually know Hunter Biden. Uh, there is a person who's important in all this who I do know and used to work together with. So when I was at Parex Bank of Latvia, which uh, later split off uh, its corrupt business to some other uh, corrupt banks, um, <laughs> Parex had a Washington lobbyist named Sa Sally Painter. And Sally Painter's firm, Blue Star Strategies, got subpoenaed uh, over this relationship between Burisma and Hunter Biden uh, because she apparently set it up. Now, that lady, Sally Painter, Originally, she was like my friend because we were colleagues. We were both trying to spread the good word about this wonderful bank, Parex, that was supposedly clean, even though it was not clean, and later it collapsed. And later it was also connected to this Tombovskaya mafia. But anyway, what she has been doing in these years since I uh, first was working together with her, so I did this whistleblowing. The whistleblowing got covered up. I got chased out of Latvia with threats. She received a high state award from Latvia. Um, so she uh, returns back to Washington after basically helping the Russian mob destroy several countries and uh, with a high state award that she won from a corrupt government for that. And then she's working on projects such as matching Hunter Biden up with, um, uh, with Burisma. There was another one there's uh, connected to Latvia. So uh, another mafia bank from Latvia, Baltic International Bank, which recently got shut down, but for 30 years was doing large scale money laundering. She matched them up with a mm -hmm. former high ranking person from the CIA to be on their board of directors, uh, Joseph <laughs> Kofer Black. Oh, my God. I know Kofer Sally Black. Painter did that as well. <laughs> So I, I know Colfer Black. Oh, my gosh. And uh, yeah, Colfer has not, I guess, been all that uh, astute on who he's dealing with. And I, I John, do you, let me ask you a question. Do you think Colfer went into this eyes wide open or did, did you think he was duped? I mean, it seems like they try to get people to be to legitimize what they're doing. I think that's a great point. Well, I know about several situations like this, and it is, it's a Russian mafia trick or a KGB trick that they right. use forever and that uh, Western people should be more alert about picking up on these things. I mean, one of the things is for a mafia bank that's moving money for the Kremlin's secret criminal projects. Uh, if you see that a bank's board of directors is loaded up with people like former CIA, former FBI, yeah. uh, this is actually a red flag that uh, what they're doing is not some kind of normal banking, that what they're doing mm -hmm. is something where they're trying to show off that they're pro-Western, even though they're not. And they're doing this by uh, paying some people who are somewhat deceived, but maybe not entirely deceived. I mean, what they could have told uh, uh, Joseph is they could have told him that, uh, listen, here are all these reports from uh, 
you know, all these auditors and ratings agencies. And we had a, uh, this is something Parks did as well. They had an AML audit where one of the big four auditors signed off this AML audit that we had proper anti-money laundering, even though most of our accounts were mafia accounts and most of the money flowing through the bank was money laundering, that uh, you can just pay one of the big four auditors and they'll sign off that they did an AML audit. So you could show something like that to a prospective director and say, listen, uh, you're not getting your old salary anymore. We'll pay you a big salary if you'll join the board of directors. And you can look at this uh, AML special audit that we got from one of the big four to get confidence that uh, what we're doing is okay. In fact, uh, something, a project which I'm working on right now, which is two similar people who got similarly trapped. So there was another bank in Latvia, not even, I mean, there's a whole family of these banks. So not Baltic not Baltic International Bank and not Parex Bank, but this other one, PNB Bank, had two people on their uh, board of directors. One of them, Anders Vogt Rasmussen, who used to be the uh, head of NATO, yeah. And one, August Hanning, who used to run German intelligence. So this bank, uh, PNB, it went through several name changes, but that was its final name, uh, was, was laundering money for North Korea, apparently. And uh, these two guys were on the board of directors. And I'm sure that when they got recruited, they were not told that it was North Korean money going through the bank. And uh, now I understand from these articles I've read is both of them have their homes garnished. So, uh, because money went missing from the bank, this is wow. going to happen to uh, to Kofor Black as well. Is that he's going to find out he doesn't have his house anymore? Wow. Because uh, tens of millions of euros went missing from this bank. If you're on the board of directors, uh, you can have liability for these things. And uh, even if you have the best, uh, I mean, I know because I've been a company director before. Even if you have the best insurance, you think. Uh, the insurance company will for sure think of some kind of excuse not to back you up when they find out that you were director of a company that was, you know, running Russian mob money or North Korean money. So, uh, yeah, that that's one way that the Russian mafia tries to trick people, but it should be easily detectable. I mean, if you see that there's a bank and the people on the board of directors are not bankers, but they're all former spies, then, then this that's would a be clue. A, something strange. Yeah, that's happening. a big clue right there. Yeah. yeah. So, John, to that point, so, I, I had uh, – I'll, ju- I'll let you go in one second. Uh, I'm sorry. But I want to hit this. But so just so – I, I don't know if you all knew. I was actually given a defensive briefing by the FBI back when Anna Chapman was running her spy network. And to your point, John, they, they the uh, KGB at the time, were shopping for influence in Washington. They weren't necessarily going for classified information. But back when Anna Chapman was running her network, they were looking for influence. So it so- sounds to me this is a common tactic. The FBI actually called me and told me that I was going to be approached. Basically, the time frame was going to happen and what to do, because uh, as, as a whistleblower myself, the perception by the Russians is, well, he's, he's open to being approached. And they were just going to uh, basically put on the table a certain amount of money and say workforce. So to, to, from what you're saying, it's pretty common for the Russians to do that sort of thing. Oh, they, they have. Uh, there's a guy who was uh, somewhat of a friend of mine. I mean, he wasn't from Parex Bank, but he was involved in this stuff. And he approached me after my whistleblowing was finished, after I was in exile. I'm not even going to say where I am. Uh, this is something about being a whistleblower. I don't tell anybody where yeah, I don't blame anymore. anymore. <laughs> right. but, um, I understand. Th- this guy approached me and he said, John, you should figure out by now that the Western law enforcement, they're screwing everything up. They can't, like, even clues can hit them in the face and they don't even react. 
that uh, he says that I was really good at my old job at Forex, convincing the Western banks that we were not corrupt. Uh, but he says that he had a different financial company that was also connected with Latvia and with Russia, and that his company had a problem in the UK that their account with their British bank got closed and they need to open a new British pounds account. And he says that I have the personality that's right for this, where I can go, uh, you know, after I give up on the whistleblowing stuff and I admit that the Russian mafia is going to conquer the world and that the West has no chance, that if I sign up with them again, then uh, they'll forgive me for the first whistleblowing um, that he actually told me that. And that also I can go to the UK for them and uh, spread the good word about this other financial company, which needs to open a British pounds account, presumably to run Russian mafia money through. But he was saying that, uh, no, the flexibilities people have, I guess they they figure out that uh, certain people have certain demeanors that uh, that they can talk to Western people and Western people trust them and other people don't. But I, in my case, I refused this, and it seemed even absurd to me. But I thought it was funny that they even asked me to do the same thing again, like after one time yes, getting yes. set up as a front, that they'd ask me another time to be a front. It's about that time, gentlemen. Oh, Sig Sauer brings us Tony's take. And uh, we always like to hear Tony's take. Sig Sauer, never settle. I don't settle for uh, silly questions. We're looking for Tony's take on uh, things that are going on, and we have a full house here, so we'd like to hear from you guys as well. Tony, first off, a lot of All talk right. about banning TikTok. Banning TikTok. Right. Uh, the, idea, the idea is it's idiotic, and I understand that it's contributed to the dumbing down of society, but what hasn't in the past 25 years? Having said that, we understand there are Chinese, uh, there, there, are, there are Chinese Communist Party influences and potential spying problems involved with that. We get that data collection problems. We get that, too. Right. Problem is, in a free society, we have to operate as such where uh, we have to allow people to take these risks. Under, I mean, the whole caveat emptor thing, let the user beware instead of buyer at this point. But the idea is, what's your take on this between the fact that it's a free society, but we do have a serious national security issue when it comes to TikTok? I think people need to understand today, anything you put on your phone, if you put something on your phone, if, if whoever developed that program basically has complete access to who you are. That is to say, no matter what, how benign it is, if it's just uh, Angry Birds or it's a weather program, it gets access to everything. I don't care what the end user agreement says. I don't care mm -hmm. what button you push. It has access. And once mm -hmm. you have access to this, it has access to this, to everything else, your life, everything that you are. Mm -hmm. So that's, to, to your point, buyer beware, because the moment you allow that, you've compromised who you are. That's period. And this is something that I don't think pe people fully have appreciated that that they these corporations who give you these great tools and they're great tools. There's some great stuff on the phone. I mean, let, let's let's face it. Who ha doesn't love Angry Birds as a real cultural icon for something that needs <laughs> to be on their phone? I mean, wow. Or how, how do people crush. not live with that on their phone? But my, the point is, TikTok <laughs> does not only dumb that down people. It takes what you do and categorizes it, and then has the potential then to feed that to the people who own TikTok. The people who own TikTok are not a company. Mm -hmm. It's the government of the PRC, the People's Republic of China. Right. China is a communist country. They do not permit any company to be, quote unquote, private. Even though they say they're private, they're not. They're owned they're not. essentially in some form or uh, allowed to exist by the state. The state has access to everything. 
So by extension, then I've, I'd like to believe I've just made the, the linkage between your personal data, your life, the device that you use to talk on or you email on to the programs on the device you talk and, and, and email on to the people who own that technology, which is the people in, at TikTok, the company. And that company then goes to the Chinese government. That's it. So as long as you are okay with the knowledge that anything you say, do, or share on your phone is also carbon copied to the Chinese government, as long as you're okay with that, that's fine. But that's the reality of which it is. So it's not just about dumbing down America. Trust me, uh, we have enough uh, of that already going on. We're not worried about TikTok doing that. What, we, what I'm worried about and other experts are worried about is the data. It's all about the data. And uh, people don't understand how valuable your data is and how that data, once uh, analyzed, can be used as a tool of psychological influence back at you. Ultimately, that's mm -hmm. what they're trying to do with this. It's not about just having the data. It's about what do you do with the data and what they do with the data, obviously, in this case, is for purposes of, of uh, social and cultural manipulation. That's what's have going you, on. Did you happen to see Tucker last night, Tony? But uh, he did share something along with uh, Lou Kradowski of We Are Change and several other people out there are sharing that although we agree with this whole concern about needing to restrict the data that they have and the access that they have to through TikTok and the addiction to and all these other things, it is a problem. However, it's the verbiage. So when you got the left and the right agreeing, it's like, wait a minute, what's going on here? And he started raising the point. And I think Rand Paul is someone else. There's a few other people speaking out about it because when they go to look at the meat of this bill, ah, what's going on here? And so it seems as if they can make enemies of us and podcasters, people who use VPN. So it's in the, the verbiage mm -hmm. is what's making this dangerous. So they, we want to agree with it. And for these restrictions, for the very reasons you brought up, but for other reasons in the verbiage, we're like, wait a minute, are we going to be ensnared in something ourselves where we're going to be pulled in ourselves as a problem? I don't know, Elizabeth, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. Yeah, um, when you want to outright ban something, well, then that's when the people who oppose you say, well, you know, if you want to ban this, then we'll ban that. It's always like uh, a like they're going to go against something that you like. So yeah, outright ban is <clears throat> generally not a good way to do something because then that just makes people want even more. But yeah, Tanya, you're absolutely right. It is about the verbiage. <clears throat> when you dig deep, once again, we've talked about this before, when people don't dig deep enough and they, it just sounds, the fluff on the surface sounds nice. Like, oh yeah, we'll just all agree. Um, yeah, you have to dig deep and see what the verbiage is. And yeah, you're right. They're calling it the Patriot Act of the Internet. Let's right. take a step back. And you guys, John, Tony, you know this as well. Uh, the Communist Party of any nation will do their best to take down a free nation. Right. And this is an easier way to do it. Used to be mm -hmm. they'd have to put in the effort to fly some Nepo actress, daughter of uh, another actor that was more famous at the time, to sit on a, uh, a weapon and insult the country of, uh, of, their, of their targetry, if you will. Oh, yeah. In Hanoi. But anyway, thoughts. <laughs> but she looked really good on an anti-aircraft uh, defense system. I think I think her butt on that uh, that uh, aircraft thing was pretty cool. I'm just saying she still she if still looked like a train airplane. You need to look good doing it, right? That's the whole idea. Yeah. Speaking of she shooting, does not like a real quick plug for Six Hour. I I, I keep forgetting this. So Six Hour is our sponsor. Uh, I I'm a big fan of the P320. This is one of my favorites here with the. Uh, 
with the all sorts of gadgets on it. The light, you know, a light is very important for night when you go out at night, mm -hmm. you know, looking around. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I highly recommend it. Never settle. So Six Hour brings you Tony's Takes, and we're ready to continue with Tony's Takes, aren't we, Chris? Well, let's get Tony's Take. And, and John, I want your take on this, too, because oh. you lived in a you lived in a country. After, after Tony's Take, I want to get your take. You lived in a country where they don't allow this sort of thing. And this country's on the brink of trying that each time. But there are counties fighting back. Manatee County uh, recently has uh, proclaimed itself uh, as a Second Amendment sanctuary county. There are more of these things happening in municipalities and counties around the country. Looks like it could happen with states, and it may be a, a way for a lot of areas to fight back against the, um, the, the taking of, of, of such Second Amendment rights away, or at least the attempts to do so. Uh, Tony, your thoughts on the progress of the uh, of the Second Amendment sanctuary city and county? Well, look, the left has been doing sanctuary cities for decades now. I mean, the whole idea that you can be a citizen of a foreign country and, and be in New York or Honolulu or D.C., Detroit, and uh, they will not, they, the city, will not enforce the law. So turnabout is fair play. So the idea is basically, in this case, uh, counties refusing to follow federal law, which actually violates the, the, the Second Amendment and the Constitution. So I, I'm all for it. And I live in North Carolina. You all know uh, we live in a, a, a county which is very liberal. People actually have open carry. I see people uh, on a regular basis who are carrying weapons openly. Uh, I am often, as I always say, I've always got a SIG close to me. That includes when I'm outside the house. Uh, six hour is obviously my choice for, for concealed carry. The, the P365 is, a, is my favorite weapon for, for being outside the house. And so it's all about personal protection. And um, to that point, Chris, and let me make this very clear. If you see me in public, nobody even knows I'm armed. And, and that's the whole idea is that if mm -hmm. you're out and about working, uh, exercising, just hanging out, shopping, you have the right to be prepared to defend yourself. And that's all it is. And uh, the idea that somehow having a gun-free zone where only criminals or terrorists or the mentally handicapped are able to be armed is completely insane. So I, I support the mm -hmm. sanctuary cities and locations. Mm -hmm. But John, you lived in a, you lived in Russia where they don't allow citizens to arm themselves or at least the regular citizens. Quick take on that. Uh, well, this I can make this, this revolution in America. Yeah. I mean, regarding gun control, uh, regarding even people spying on you with TikTok, neither of those are my areas of expertise. I mean, about the proper way that gun control should be done or or how to counter surveillance by Big Brother. But for sure, something I'll say is that uh, it is scary, the level of corruption of modern day governments, that modern oh, yeah. day governments are setting all new records of uh, corruption. And you can't trust the police. You can't go to the police for help. Uh, chances are the police could be working for the same people who you're trying to blow the whistle on. I mean, that's what happened to me. Mm -hmm. uh, in this sort of a situation, sure, if the police have all the guns and if the police are watching everybody's TikTok and uh, they know everything and that they have all the power and everybody else has nothing, then uh, this is uh, totalitarianism or communism where it's a bad situation. So I'll, I'll say that, but about uh, details about what I think about gun control or about TikTok, I'm not going to say. Well, it's okay. Well, I will. <laughs> this is my show and I get to talk about those things. And uh, Obviously, the TikTok thing hey, is something that everybody, well, no, everybody needs to control and be concerned about their data. It's all about the data. There was a right. movie yeah. years ago called Sneakers. 
And it was, and the tagline was, it's all about the data. And by the way, it's mm-hmm. only gotten worse since that movie, by the way, it's, that was a great movie with Sidney Poitier and, uh, and Robert Redford and a bunch of other notables folks. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so anyway, so we're wrapping up, right, Chris, we're at the end of another great episode. We are approaching the very end. And if you uh, want to check out some of our, uh, our past episodes, you haven't done that yet. You can find them in a, several places, especially the America out loud, um, podcast network you can find right. us wherever you get your podcasts iHeartRadio, apple Podcasts, google Podcasts. we do do a video on the project sentinel youtube page as well great and so uh john thank you for joining us today again uh, it's uh it's kgb banker but john is not the kgb banker he's not kgb no. let me be very clear he is not <laughs> i'm KGB. against the kgb that's Thank right he's against the kgb as we all are that's right and so, if, so, so, yes, yeah, so, so, uh, so, FBI, if you're listening, we're all against the KGB. Just saying, okay. <laughs> and then we are. No, I'm serious. We are. And then that's uh, right. We are. So, so, and then uh, obviously, uh, it's funny. We have to say out, it. Yeah. Shout out to my friend Sheree Curry. Sheree does our bumper music, uh, Rock and Roll Oblivion. She's on tour right now as we're taping this. So hopefully she'll be back safe in the United States very soon, so she can get back and participate in all these great things we have going on here with uh, our project. So. Uh, that's it for this week. Uh, this has been the hard truth of Tony Schaefer. Uh, my colleagues have been, uh, you know, Chris Cordani, Elizabeth Reckenkamp, and Tanya Miller, and obviously we're special special guest John Christmas. So we'll see you all again very soon. And thanks for being. Here.